Well, good morning again. My name is Sean. I'm the lead pastor here. In case you missed Donnie's announcement earlier, there is children's worship today, even though it's the fifth Sunday. We are having that today. So you guys, kids, can be released to that if you want to go to that. And if you're a, one of our guests here today, we're so glad to have you with us. Uh, on the back of your order of worship, there is a QR code. If you'd like to find out more information about our church, or maybe have coffee with a pastor or a staff member, you fill that out and we will get back in touch with you. We'd love to connect with you. There's also some information out there in the foyer. And then for those of you who may be exploring this today, so what's about to happen is a sermon. And this is not a chance for me to get up here and to give you a speech about my thoughts on the day. The last thing you need is my thoughts on anything. Uh, my job today is to kind of take us into this text and to kind of apply it to our, our lives today. And so um, what I say that comes from this text, I would invite you to consider and see if it will help your life. And what I say that you cannot find in this text, just spit that out. That's probably no good to anybody. All right, so today's passage is found for you on page 10 in your order of worship. It's on page 924 in that chair Bible there in front of you. And if you don't have a Bible um, at home, please do take that Bible with you. We'd love for you to have that as our gift. So we are starting a new series today in this New Testament letter, what we call a book of Colossians. This is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to this church in this little town. We're not going to get there for a while, so you can take it down. Uh, this is a letter that Paul wrote to this church in this little town. And um, he is trying to help them see what's going on in their life and how they can take the gospel and apply it to themselves. So to get us into the mindset of this text, here's what I, what I want to do. I want to th make you think about a country music song. I, I like country music. I drive a truck. It's like defaulting to country music. I didn't have a choice. So Alan Jackson's Where I Come From. It's a great song. The chorus goes, Where I Come From, It's Cornbread and Chicken. Isn't that a great country thing to say? Where I come from, it's a lot of front porch sitting. And then the very end of the chorus says, where I come from, it's working hard to get to heaven. And isn't that a great, succinct way to put the default of a traditional, conservative, Christianized culture? It's we're working hard to get to heaven, right? And that actually, that mentality is the background to the New Testament letter of Colossians. See, what happened is these false teachers had come into the church at Colossae and they started attacking grace. Jesus wasn't enough. He had to add some extra things. Jesus was insufficient. You needed uh, another experience. You needed to add some strict rules. You needed to add some religious practices to Jesus. When things got tough, when life wasn't working, you had to add to Jesus just a top off of some fullness to get through because he just wasn't quite there for you. Now, when I put it that way, it sounds like we would never do that, but we still kind of do this today, even 2,000 years later. If you've been around Sycamore at all for a little while, you've probably heard me talk about the five little words that we use to destroy the gospel. Remember, don't you think Christians should? And then we fill in our opinion, our flavor, our preference. We give it the weight of Scripture, and then we judge other Christians as less than because of our preference. You've had it happen to you, I've had it happen to me, and <clears throat> we've done it to other people, and it's not good. Can I just say it this way? And I'm going to say it like this because you'll remember. It's never a good thing when Christians should on each other. In my house, when I see my kids, they come up to me, they say, Dad, you should. Stop, don't should on me. It's not your place. 
Now, I say it that way because it kind of feels that way, right? And if you're struggling with Christianity, maybe you have someone in your life who's struggling with Christianity, if you've been hurt by the church, if you've been hurt by churched people, I'm going to bet that it had to do with a should. People rarely get hurt over the beauty and sufficiency of Jesus, right? It's something else. And I'm so sorry if you've had to deal with that. That's things. I've had that happen to me too. This letter, this book, is going to shine a light on the utter beauty of Jesus Christ himself and the complete worthlessness of anything we attempt to add to him. So with that in mind, now let's turn to the text. Let's look together at Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. Again, it's found on page 10 in your order of worship, page 924 in that chair Bible there for you. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Jesus Christ and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. This is God's Word. Let's pray together. Oh, gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You for Your Word. And Father, as we come before Your Word today, we ask that You would once again give us truth for our growth and for our transformation. Lord, may we see Jesus in all of His beauty. Would You show us, Lord, the utter worthlessness of all the other things we try to add to impress You. We pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so just a little bit about this book here. So, in the the historical record of the New Testament is found in a book called Acts. And in Acts chapter 19, the missionary Paul shows up at this city called Ephesus, which is a, a major big city. And he spends three years teaching in this public place the gospel. At some point, some guy wandered in from a small town down the road named Colossae, and he, he hears Paul. His name is Epaphras. It's technically probably Epaphras. I don't like the way that feels in the mouth. We're going to call him Epaphras. So Epaphras shows up. Epaphras hears the gospel, gets converted, and stays and gets some training by Paul. Then he goes back to his small town, and he plants a church in this little backwoods crossroads that was past its prime, and nobody had heard of. In fact, about a decade after this letter was written, an earthquake came through, destroyed the town, and they were like, eh, not worth rebuilding. Let's just leave it. So it's gone. So this is the smallest town that Paul had ever written a letter to, and he'd never met these people. They'd never met him. He had never been there. Paul is in prison. Epaphras comes and visits him in prison, gives him a report about what the good things happening in the church, and he also gives him a, a report about these false teachers in the church. And so Paul writes to confront them. 
Now, we don't know exactly what the false teaching was. What we do see is Paul's different emphases throughout this letter. Let us see that whatever those false teachers were, it was themes of religious externalism, like really showing how off how godly you were. It was themes of asceticism, okay, not aesthetics. That's a very popular word today. That means beauty and stuff. This is ascetics. This means a denial of your body in such a way that you think God likes you more. Like, for instance, you go to dinner and you're like, you know what? I'm a Christian. I would really enjoy a steak. Jesus died on the cross, so, so I shouldn't enjoy things because Jesus had to die for me, so I'll eat oatmeal. And somehow God will like me more because I ate oatmeal, not a steak. That's asceticism. And they had fallen into this trap that the more I deny myself, the more I add to Jesus, the more God likes me. And so Paul responds by writing one of the most Jesus-focused books in the New Testament. He's going to remind us that our status with God is both earned and maintained by the grace of the Lord Jesus himself. Colossians is adamant that maturity is not found in increasingly rigorous religious performance, but rather maturity is in a deeper appreciation of our union with Christ. Okay, so why was this book written? Let me, let me try to translate this into our era. These false teachers had come in and they had created a Christian version of imposter syndrome in the church. And people were scared. In case you don't know, imposter syndrome has been around a couple years now. People are finally owning the fact that, hey, guess what? It's not just you. It's not just you who sits in your office or sits in your cubicle or sits at home behind your desk working from home and you think, every promotion I've gotten, every success I've really pulled through, honestly, it's been more luck than skill and I'm so afraid my boss is going to peel back that veneer and see I don't know what I'm doing. It's not just you. Everybody feels that way. It's a psychological thing called imposter syndrome and what these false teachers has, had done is they had come and brought that into the church. Because false teachers always assume the moral high ground. They always assume that they've got it all together, they have true godliness, you don't, and they make you feel less than. Especially when biblical Christianity is so simple. It's so plain, right? We don't have to do a lot. God does it for us mostly, and in his worship, we come and do very simple things. We don't have a lot of smells and bells in simple biblical worship. And that leaves us sometimes open to false teaching because we want to we get some skin in the game. If you have someone in your life who maybe is drifting from Christianity, maybe to use the, the words used today, maybe they're deconstructing their faith Typically, if they still want to orbit around Christianity, they don't just walk away. They end up in more so-called progressive Christianity, which tends to have a lot more elements of, of mysticism and things you can do to have some skin in the game. It feels like you're participating more. You know, when I left for college, I was in a kind of a more fundamentalistic denomination. And like most people, I, I became a little more liberal in my Christianity and in my life than my parents did that's okay. Don't freak out. That happens. And so as I would be at college and I, and I would have my own personal devotions because I, I was a Christian since I was early high school, um, 
I would start to do my devotions, and instead of just reading the text and maybe singing and praying, I would read more and read more and sing more, and I had to go until I got the chills. Until I got, you know, that little whoo kind of chill you get sometimes in life. I had to do that. And if I didn't get that, it wasn't a good time with the Lord. My devotions weren't that good. Oh, I'm not that, I'm not that close to God today. That's adding to something. Jesus as my mediator was not enough. I needed this experience. Colossians is written for people like me. And so over the next several months, we're going to watch Colossians unpack my ridiculous heart, and I'm just going to do it publicly for your benefit, okay? So come and we'll watch it together. That gets us to our theme for today, which is this. When someone makes you afraid you've missed out on grace, just look for its fruit. If someone makes you afraid that you are less than, that you're an imposter, that you've missed out, just look for the fruit and be assured. So as we walk through this text today, this text kind of naturally divides itself up into three ways based on the verb heard. You'll see the verb heard in verse 4. You'll see the verb, verb heard in verse 5 and the verb heard in verse 6. So the first thing we see here is we see that we're going to be hearing gospel truth. So to assure these Christians that they really had the real deal, the main deal about Christianity, Paul tells them, look at me at verse 5. He says, look, you have heard the word of truth, the gospel. You've heard it. You've got it. You're anchored in it. And we could translate that word of truth there. We could translate that system. We could translate that announcement. We could translate it the reality of truth. And what Paul is getting at here is that the gospel is a reality. It's an objective truth. It's not just a feeling that we experience. That when God's people were dead in their sin, when they were enslaved to unrighteousness, that true to his promises, God sent a redeemer. That the Lord Jesus Christ came, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem us from the curse of the law. And he did it by living the life that we should live before a holy God, meeting all of his demands. And then he died the death that sinners like us deserve to die before a just God, earnestly paying the penalty for our sins. And then in his resurrection, he proves that not only did he set us free, defeat sin and death, but these things will happen because Jesus was raised. We can be confident that we too were raised from the grave. And in that, we are then free from the power of sin, adopted into God's family, able to call God Father and actually be true. All of that while we were still sinful enemies of God. Jesus did not come and say, clean yourselves up first and then I'll rescue you. Jesus rescued us in the sin and the muck and then he cleans us up. That's the gospel. No working hard to get to heaven here. This is the gospel. And Paul says, y'all have heard that. And so place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone in that gospel, not what the false teachers are telling you. And to help them see that they really got the real deal, Paul then goes on to say in verse 6 that, hey, that same gospel, it's exploding all over the empire. You have the real deal. You see the real deal working. Don't listen to the false teachers. They're wrong. The Colossians already heard and already had the gospel truth. They did not miss out on grace. Because when someone makes you afraid you've missed out on grace, just look for its fruit. So the next thing we see here, we see hearing of gospel fruit. So Paul tells them, starting off in verses 3 and 4, he basically says, look, y'all, you're doing so great. 
And again, for those of you who are here, who are, who are new, or maybe you're, you're unaccustomed to the way we do things at Sycamore, we try to be very literal. And so when you see the word Y-O-U in the New Testament, with the exception of like three, maybe four times, it's plural. So I'm going to say y'all because you and I tend to be the main characters in our own story, right? And we read me when we read that. No, it's y'all. So Paul is talking to a group. He says, y'all, you're doing so great in verse 3. And he does that because the first tactic of false teachers is to disrupt your peace. They got to get in there and they got to wiggle around in your, in your contentment and they got to make a space to insert their false teaching. So they come and they want to disrupt your calm. And Paul says, no, y'all are doing great already. Don't let them do that. And then he says, we're praying for y'all. And notice in his prayer what he says, he doesn't say normally we're praying to our Father. He says, we're praying to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is not what he normally says. And he does that because, again, at the very beginning, he wants to anchor them in the unique sonship of Jesus Christ. He is the divine Son. Somehow, Jesus' position and sufficiency was under assault. So from the very beginning, he anchors Jesus as the unique divine Son. He goes, I'm so thankful for your faith in Jesus because that's the gospel. Believing in Jesus as the divine Son. And when that happens, when we trust in Him as the divine Son, there are results. There's fruit. Look with me at verses uh, 4 and 5. What does he say? He says, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Faith, hope, love. That is the New Testament litmus test for authentic Christianity. You go to a church, you scoop in the beaker, you pour out some of the liquid, you take out your little strip, you swish it around, and it turns purple. Like Christianity, there it is. We have faith, hope, and love. This is the real deal. Don't listen to the false teachers. You've got it. And can I confess that just testing for faith, hope, and love bothers me? Because I'm a Presbyterian minister. Can't we throw in a little theology, right? Can't we throw in a little bit of Westminster? Faith, hope, love, Westminster. You have something. But see, you don't have to go looking for theology because a community will always display what they actually believe. And so Paul says, when we put y'all under the microscope, we see faith, we see hope, we see love. You've got the gospel. What you actually believe is the gospel. We're so thankful you display this fruit. Paul says, man, when Epaphras came and told me about y'all, it's clear that y'all are swimming in faith in Jesus. Y'all have love for other Christians all over the place, and you clearly hope in God's promises. I thank God for y'all. That is not the message they got from the false teachers who came in causing doubt, making these Christians feel like imposters, doubting they actually were Christians. But to have Paul, the OG celebrity pastor, write to them and say, y'all are doing great, must have been so encouraging. Because when someone makes you afraid you've missed out on grace, just look for its fruit. The next thing we see here is we see we have hearing gospel grace. Look with me at verses 6 and 7. What does he say? 
Paul says, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. All right, so I want to walk through a couple phrases from this. First, the grace of God in truth. We could translate that last little phrase in truth as truly instead of in truth, because what Paul is getting at is not so much in what they believed, but in how well they understood it. They've truly grasped it. It's not that they've grasped truth, it's they've truly grasped this. He basically says, y'all have got the gospel from the very beginning. You embraced the gospel. You took it deep into your heart. You know, here at Sycamore, we, we try to orbit around four main values of live, grow, thrive, and go. And our second value is called grow, and it really encapsulates what Paul is saying here. It's the idea of treasuring the gospel, bringing it into your heart, not just an intellectual knowledge of it, not even just a believing in it, but letting it come into your heart and being a treasure. That's grow. We're going to talk more about those four values in the month of September. So if you want to learn more about our church, September would be a great time to come and we really look at the DNA of what our church is all about. So here Paul says, y'all have embraced the gospel. You've treasured the gospel. You have the real deal. And then he says, it's the grace of God truly. He really emphasizes grace because whatever these false teachers taught, it was attacking grace. To add to Jesus, to, to do something to imply that he is not enough, destroys grace. If Jesus isn't enough, you and I have to close the gap with our own works, with our own performance. We're back to working hard to get to heaven. And that's not grace. If you add anything to Jesus, you've destroyed grace. And I know that sounds dogmatic and that sounds so harsh, but let me ask you this. How much poison is okay in your ice cream? For me, it's none, right? And, and so too, how much works is okay to be in, your, in grace? And the answer is none, because it's poison. And yet, we fall into this trap. We do. All right, I'm going to do a little theological education here real quick. Okay, I've got a slide we're going to put up for a while. You see, guys, let's go ahead and put this, this slide up. i got some big, i got the big three theological words. We've got justification, we've got sanctification, and we've got assurance. Y'all can read, so I'm going to let you. I'm not going to read it to you. But basically, justification is an act that God does where he places our sin on Jesus, his righteousness on us, counts us as free and forgiven. It's an act of God. Sanctification is an ongoing work of God where he appropriates that reality into our life, making us more like Jesus. And assurance is the steadfast bedrock belief, trust, hope that you are in Christ and that you are favored of God. Those big three things. Now keep those up there. We're going to keep talking about those. So here's the deal. You and I, especially in church world, we want assurance. We thirst for assurance. We want to be anchored in assurance. And we get in trouble because often what do we do? We base our assurance on our sanctification. We look at our performance and judge how much God really likes us. You, you see how that's not going to work, right? Now, we come about it naturally. White-collar people like us, we're used to having to have, you know, employee evaluations all the time. We're, we live in that in, in dread of, of the, oh, please don't let me get the needs improvement, right? Right? Meets expectations. Come on, meets expectations, right? And every night before we fall asleep, we do that, don't we? We sit down with the great HR director in the sky, 
And we deep down know, I need improvement. God's not happy with me today. I was a bad Christian today. I don't know what a good Christian is, by the way, because we're all bad at Christians. That's why we need Jesus. But we do that, right? We're basing our assurance on our sanctification. And when we do that, oh man, false teachers love that because they swoop in to assure us, you absolutely are not performing enough. God is definitely disappointed in your poor performance. I was reading a book about this for a different project earlier this week, and the author puts it this way, so good. I was like, are you following me around? He says this, he goes, most Christians operate as if at our salvation, when we confess our faith and trust in Jesus, God gives us this tremendous big pile of favor, of goodwill, of good feelings, whatever you want to call it, this big old pile, God likes us. And we put that on our back and we carry that around through our life. And as we falteringly stumble through the Christian walk, failing, sinning, repenting, never repenting enough, we grab handfuls and throw, throw it into the garbage because we, f- we just feel like, oh, I'm such a bad Christian. God's favor on me is just diminishing. And deep down in places we don't talk about, we hope we die before the pile gets to zero. Yeah, that resonated with me about with you too. That's what happens when you place your assurance in your sanctification, and that's not the gospel. Assurance is based on justification. God's act in you, what he does for you in Christ. Assurance, what God has done for you in Jesus, then empowers our sanctification, what God is doing in you through Jesus. Now, Christian, hear this. God is not disappointed with his children. Because of our union with Jesus, you realize when we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone, the things that are true of Jesus are true of us. And when God sees us, he sees us in his son. Let me say it a different way. If you are in Jesus, God's well done good and faithful servant has already been spoken over your life. Imagine what that would do if you actually believed that instead of just immediately disbelieving that, right? Not me, I'm just a bad Christian. God's not well pleased with me. But if you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus, when he put Jesus' righteousness on you, when he united you to Christ, when he took you out of Adam the first and put you under Adam the second, the new man, Jesus Christ, he pronounced in that moment, well done, I am pleased with you. That's the gospel. That's the grace of God in truth. Paul rejoices these Colossians have and wants them to hold on to it. All right, that's enough for that slide. Thanks for keeping it up this long. Next little phrase we have here. Is, he says, just as you learned it from Epaphras. See, this next thing false teachers love to do is they love to attack local leadership. And so because of these false teachers, their own pastor had to get a boost of credibility from far off Paul. He had been diminished in their eyes because that's how false teachers work. Well, sure, Epaphras taught you the gospel, He says Paul taught that, but Paul hasn't been here. Paul doesn't know what's going on in this church. There's more to the story than what Epaphras has told you. He's left off vital stuff. I mean, yeah, your pastor says this is the gospel, but the really famous celebrity pastor with the huge podcast says if he doesn't include this, he's a closet liberal. That's never happened to me. 
It's just super. See, Paul counters what? Your pastor's a gospel man. What does he say? He said he's a faithful minister of Christ. See, the false teachers came in and they said, look at us, believe in us. And Epaphras says, look at Jesus, believe in him. To these struggling Christians, poisoned by false teaching, Paul anchors them in the truth of the gospel and the trustworthiness of their pastor. Because when someone makes you afraid you've missed out on grace, just look for its fruit. Okay, how do we wrap this up? There's lots of ways we could wrap this up. Here's one suggestion. I'm not saying you actually do this, but let's, hypothetically, you could take out a pen and you could circle Christ or Jesus five times in this passage. You could circle God or Father five times in this passage. You could circle Spirit once. You could circle the word heard three times. You could circle faith, hope, and love. You could circle truth. You could circle gospel. And you take all those circles together, what do you have? You have the Trinity working of grace and truth so that we could have faith, hope, and love available to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Oh, non-Christians, if, you're, if you would call yourself that, if you're not sure if you believe this Christianity stuff, I'm so glad you're here. And if you've been hurt by churched people, I hope you've been able to see here it's something extra they've added. They, they laid a should on you. I'm sorry, I've, I've experienced that too. It's no good. But see, in this passage, that was not the gospel you encountered. You don't have to earn. You don't have to perform. You don't have to jump through hoops. Jesus is enough. And when you place your faith and trust in him as the resurrected Lord, he makes you enough too. Oh, Christians here. Jesus is enough. Let's stay away from the five words, right? Don't you think Christians should? Let's just stay away from those and let's rest in Jesus Christ alone. Let's believe in God's love for us, walking out our justification, empowered by assurance, becoming more sanctified. That's Christianity. So for all of us here, repent and believe this gospel. Let's pray together. Oh, gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You for Your Word. Lord, we thank You for Your Word that challenges us. And Lord, those of us who know You, Lord, we confess that we're always wanting to bring our works. We always feel less than. It's just too good to be true that you've saved us by grace alone, so we're always trying to bring our own blood and shed it on the cross to impress you. Lord, would you forgive us for that disparagement of Jesus? Would you once again help us to place our faith and trust fully in him and his finished work? And Lord, we pray today for those here who don't know you, that Lord, as the gospel has been laid out, as Jesus Christ has been lifted up and shown to be crucified for sinners and raised for our freedom and our new life, that you'd be true to your own promise that you would draw all people to yourself. Even now, Lord, would your kingdom come and your will be done here as it is in heaven by causing many to confess and believe the gospel. Pray that you would do this, Father, by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.